0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 24th, 2023. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, we're talking this week at a time when both the WHO and the U.S. government have declared ends to the COVID emergency. Of course, that doesn't mean that COVID is over. It's still circulating, and it's still responsible for hospitalizations and deaths. But at least for now, the number of cases remains low, and the severity of the disease, on average, has continued to decrease. Of course, we're good at predicting everything except the future, so we can't say that SARS-CoV-2 is going to continue to be just a lower-level problem. For the past three years, we've been discussing the latest news in the COVID epidemic. We've had the help of several guests, and we've heard their perspectives on the epidemic. We've seen many setbacks and, gratifyingly, many advances. It's clear at this point, though, that breakthroughs are coming at a much slower pace. Given that, we've decided that it no longer makes sense to have regularly scheduled episodes of this podcast. That doesn't mean that COVID hasn't had a profound effect on everything we do. So rather than using our last regular episode for another postmortem, I wonder whether we can discuss how life has changed, both for physicians and for medical journal editors. So let me start with your daily lives. From the perspective of infectious disease physicians, is your life different today than it was before COVID-19? Steve, let me start with that one. Certainly.
1: Life is largely back to normal for me. I think that I was on the conservative side, and until relatively recently, I still wasn't eating meals out in indoor locations. But now, pretty much, I do everything that I did before. Of course, our professional lives are different. We don't go into the office as much. We're home a lot more. And that's been really nice for those who, like me, aren't in the hospital every day, unlike Lindsay. It is kind of ironic, though, that for friends and for patients who are immunocompromised, it's actually made life a little harder. At the height of the epidemic, it was possible to do lots of things. You could go to a supermarket. You could go to many indoor venues and feel comfortable because everyone was wearing a mask. At this point, it's much harder for these people to navigate. COVID is still going around. These people are still much more susceptible to both getting disease and developing severe disease. And so for them, the loosening of restrictions has been, I think, a lot more difficult.
2: Eric, as you sort of allude to, and I think, Steve, what you're getting at, you know, the world is a different place than it was three to four years ago. I think we all feel so much better and a weight off our shoulders by taking off masks. Which is symbolic, although there are significant health complications. But it allows us to get back to, as Eric, you say, normal activity with family, with friends, with coworkers. And that's been psychologically incredibly helpful. I think it synergizes with springtime, summer, warming weather, and more outdoor activity. So, in that sense, I think life is different the last few months as we have come back to something more normal. I do think we've learned some important lessons that make our behaviors a little bit different. And you sort of hinted at this, Eric, in how do we care for those who are more vulnerable from transmissible infectious diseases that have high morbidity mortality in certain populations. And that, I think, has been one of the biggest challenges, which is dynamic. We like A light switch, yes, no, on, off, vaccinate, yes, no, mask, yes, no. And when we start having a conversation where we say it depends, if it's a time with high community transmission of, let's say, a respiratory virus, be it now or likely this winter, do we change our behaviors to protect those around us, family, friends, patients, colleagues? It's something that requires us to be more dynamic. And I think that's been an important lesson over the last three years, but really hard to communicate because the information emerging is complicated, it's fast, it's changing, new information is developed, and that leaves us in positions to say, what's going on, what should I do? So I think, Eric and Steve, it requires us as a community, as providers, as family members, to be more dynamic, and to understand that knowledge is changing and our behaviors need to change with that. And that's going to be an ongoing challenge, how we communicate how best to conduct our activities while keeping ourselves and our loved ones safe. But I think that's a good position to be in because it means we can enhance what we do while minimizing the burdens. But it'll be an ongoing dialogue across all domains.
1: I think that the outbreak and the continuing threat of COVID has put physicians in an unusual position, Lindsay, because people come to us with questions. Should I do this? Should I do that? And for the most part, they're judgment calls. Should I go see my grandchildren who I haven't seen for a while, even though I'm taking immunosuppressive medications, for example? And the judgment call there is, is there a lot of COVID around? What's the individual risk for that person? And how important is it to see your grandchildren? For many people, it's extremely important. And so I think it puts physicians and other caregivers in this unusual position of trying to help people make value judgments for themselves. So instead of giving them easy answers, I think we've often been in the position of giving them complicated choices.
2: Eric, isn't that taking care of patients? A lot of what we do is provide information in frame to the values of those we're talking to, be it patients or friends. And as you and I both know, and all of our infectious disease colleagues around the country and the world, we become a common place for everyone to ask us a question about how they should behave in relation to friends, family, social events. And we need to have the time to take care of the loved ones around us and our friends who are asking us questions to allow them to make the
0: best choices. But that's life. So speaking of patients, what about changes at the hospital? Are your interactions with patients and with other medical staff, for that matter, different from before the epidemic? Lindsay, let's start with you. So, Steve,
2: I think there are a couple of important concepts that have emerged. And this gets to what we're just talking about, about being dynamic and flexible as circumstances change. I think that in the hospital, we have to be very thoughtful about how we protect our vulnerable patients and educate our colleagues on how to do that. Masks are gone. Should we be wearing masks around more vulnerable individuals, such as those who are immunosuppressed or suffering severe illness? How do we respond to changes in community infection pressure, which I mentioned before? And I think we need to think beyond COVID to influenza, RSV. And even though the COVID numbers are down tremendously, there are still thousands of hospitalizations a day across the US associated with COVID. With influenza, there are 30, 40, 50,000 deaths typically per year in the US. And we've sort of gotten used to that. I think What COVID, I hope, gives us an opportunity is to reflect on how can we do it better? How do we not accept the status quo for those conditions that our patients have, our loved ones have, so we can find better ways to minimize disease transmission for infectious diseases and morbidity of illnesses? I think another important concept, which has emerged over the last three years that we as a community have to discuss across healthcare is the value of science, moving science quickly, and participating in clinical trials. I think our oncology colleagues, in part related to the severe toxicities historically with chemotherapy, have really organized this in a way that we can emulate. And we should, as a hospital, medical, scientific community look at how we generate systematic knowledge quickly and that be normalized and that will allow us to have advances across the board not just for covid as we've witnessed in the last two to three years so i think that there's much that we have had to suffer through but there are also opportunities here for us to bring a dynamic thinking about infectious disease prevention, about how we develop new therapies, and how we bring them to our patients across our healthcare centers in a way that is part of a very positive ecosystem, which is what it should be, and I think is something we have done and can do.
1: Lindsay, I think that you're highlighting what, for me, is a positive result of the response to the epidemic, and that is that it makes infection control practices a little easier. People in the hospital are quite comfortable with the kinds of protective measures that we took during COVID, largely because the motivation was so high. Remember, at the beginning of the epidemic, people were quite worried about their own health, about transmission within the hospital and transmission from staff to patients and staff to staff. And that led to fairly extreme measures, honestly, uh, more probably than was necessary in retrospect but certainly people were comfortable with that. In addition, the physical spaces in most hospitals are set up much better in a way that lends themselves to infection control. So I think that the routine day-to-day infection control practices will probably improve as a result of the COVID epidemic, even if the mask mandate is being dropped at this point. And I suspect that next time there is a need for increased infection control, for example, a worsening of the COVID epidemic or a new pandemic, it will at least be physically easier to implement those practices, even if setting the policy might remain difficult.
2: Eric, I think you highlight an important concept, which is how we can adapt our policies to the speed of the threat. And that's something which we as a community have to become more nimble and comfortable with. Illness doesn't follow a tempo that we want it to, particularly highly contagious, rapidly spreading pathogens. And that requires us to adapt our policies accordingly. It also, I think, demonstrates our vulnerabilities to new pathogens anywhere in the world. And then how do we prepare ourselves to respond? And in the hospital environment, the ability for diagnostics to allow us to then apply the infection control and other preventative maneuvers, but it also gives us the information to understand what the burden of illness is. And that's a vulnerability that I think has been exposed in the last two to three years that we have to think a lot about is how do we diagnose things accurately so we can appropriately prioritize the response and do it in a kinetically friendly way. And this is so important in the hospital environment.
0: You both have roles on FDA committees involved with vaccines for Eric and drugs for Lindsay. How has COVID changed the process of considering FDA proposals?
1: Steve, I think that the epidemic has highlighted both advantages and disadvantages for the FDA. On the positive side, it's clear that the FDA can respond at lightning speed to an emergency. And they can really do that with the same sort of Quality review that they apply in standard conditions. The most remarkable part of the epidemic certainly was the approval of the first vaccines, which occurred over Thanksgiving weekend and involved an enormous effort by FDA staff and, of course, the sponsors themselves who had to prepare material for the FDA. But it all worked and it worked exactly the way that it should. And I think that for the most part, when it comes to the Treatments, especially later in the epidemic, when there really was full attention being paid, that the FDA responded remarkably well. On the downside, though, the FDA has been buffeted by political pressures. Remember, the FDA's role is as an expert, it's not to make value judgments, not political judgments. However, at the beginning of the epidemic, it was clear that some of the decisions were being influenced by politics. And throughout the process, even later, there was a tremendous amount of pressure being brought, if not by the government, by the public to incorporate non-technical issues into decision making. It's simply not the FDA's role, and it does put them into a difficult position. So I think that the FDA comes out of this as a strong institution, one that can fulfill its role really well. But it's clear that there are vulnerabilities, political vulnerabilities that the FDA is going to have to continue to navigate in the future.
2: So, Steve, I want to broaden your question a bit in that, as Eric has pointed out, the FDA has had incredible challenges over the last two to three years in response to the pandemic and how they maintain their very high standards while having the flexibility to move quickly. And I think the challenge that we as a scientific community have faced has been speed versus perfection. How do we manage the desire for perfect data, which may take a decade, versus needed data so we can impact health in a positive way immediately? You know, as best as we can count, well over a million of our family, friends, patients, colleagues across the U.S. have perished related to COVID over the last two years. So this was not a circumstance that we could wait for perfection in data. And the FDA has had to really deal with this. In fact, to broaden it, I think the scientific community has had to really think this through and a variety of partnerships, you know, academic healthcare centers, the academic community have had to contribute science and sites to do these studies. We've all witnessed regulatory agencies like the FDA, the EMA have had to create pathways and permissions for us to move things forward quickly. Industry, as much as we worry about their profit motives, have really contributed speed and scalability to be able to deliver therapies to our community. And we need to not minimize the importance and challenges. We also have to accept that the community has provided very important perspectives and participation in our studies. And the funders, the U.S. government, NGOs, foundations, have helped us with the priorities and how to manage the politics. So I think that the FDA, as Eric points out, has really had to change how it thinks about evaluating evidence proportionate to the quality of the data and the magnitude and speed of the problem, which I think has been terrific, with many opportunities to point out how they can do it better. But just because you can do it better did not mean you did not do a very important job, given the challenges that were before us as a nation, as a world, with imperfect science, but a catastrophic healthcare crisis. So I think there's a lot to be learned on the scientific side over the last three years. But as Eric, you point out, I think the FDA has done a terrific job in trying to navigate that, to leverage regulations that were available to it, to reevaluate its processes, to improve those processes, and to continue to demand higher standards of data as there is time and the opportunity to make such demands of the scientific, industry and other partners in development of new therapies. But this isn't one agency. This is a broad community participation that I've tried to frame briefly that really requires all of these different elements of the scientific process, the drug development process, and the delivery to those who need it. And I think it's been a model of what we can do, it's something I hope we think about for the other diseases our loved ones have that we would like solved. And we will have to manage uncertainty with data perfection as we want to bring therapies that are needed to our loved ones and our communities.
1: Lindsay, I'd like to emphasize the process part of what you said. The FDA has changed remarkably over many years in how they respond to needs that are seen out there in the public. And they'll continue to change. I think that that's a good thing. In some ways, the FDA is seen as a bureaucracy. And of course, it is a bureaucracy, but it's an adaptable one. And it showed off what it can do best, I think, during the COVID epidemic.
2: I just want to emphasize, it is the best data evaluation approval agency in the world. Other agencies elsewhere, the EMA, do terrific work as well, and they complement each other in how they evaluate new therapies. But I think we all take great confidence in knowing that whatever medicine I'm taking here in Boston, the FDA has reviewed it in a way that has helped the community and myself understand its safety and efficacy as best as one can, given limitations of data. And I think we should all be supportive and proud
0: of what that agency can do while we push it to do better. We know that the journal, like pretty much all biomedical publications, saw a flood of submissions at the height of the epidemic, and that created an enormous workload. The flood has ended. How has that changed the life of the journal, for the editors and for the staff?
1: Actually, I think that what's happened at the journal has been true in a lot of workplaces. We have come away with one big advantage, which is the ability to have remote and hybrid meetings. And that's allowed us to do things that we haven't done before. We now have editors who don't live in Boston, which is a huge difference for us. In fact, people who can't ordinarily travel to our weekly editorial meetings. And that has allowed us to tap into a much larger talent pool. And I think that that is something we want to continue going forward. The flip side of that is it means that people aren't in the office. and. Like any other business, not having people in the office means that there's some decrease in the camaraderie, which is an important part of making it a fun place to work. In addition, we miss out on all those unstructured meetings, the hallway meetings, the water cooler meetings, having lunch together, which are often the places where the most creative ideas come from. I think we're doing a little better. More people are coming in now than were before. It'll never be the same place that it was before. But it is, in some ways, strengthened. So overall, I think we've come out of it pretty well.
2: I agree, Eric, that it has changed our process of doing business and how we as editors communicate with each other for the better. But with any improvement, there are always challenges that have to be overcome. I'm glad that you have time for lunch and the water cooler meetings. I look forward to those opportunities. But I also think, Steve, that we've witnessed in the last three years how information is shared and how we as a journal participate in sharing that information because the means with which our community, our global health oriented healthcare, health provider community, accesses information. And that's something we've struggled with as a journal. We've struggled with on this podcast. We all struggle with in clinic. Information. An observation anywhere can be everywhere within minutes. Same thing with research. Research can now be generated with lesser amounts of data because the ease of which there is to communicate it. And that is a good thing because we all want to know the latest information, but that's a challenge because early returns, early reports that are not complete may not have the accurate final conclusions. And that then leads to potential for misunderstanding, confusion, and that's something we as a medical community, we as a medical reporting or journal community, have to think long and hard about how do we communicate information because open access to information is terrific, but it's buyer beware, and even with good intentions, early information may not be accurate. And that leads to communication failure, conspiracy theory, and other types of undermining communication. So I think we as a journal have to think about that as we think about the best ways to communicate the latest advances, realizing the latest advances may have been this morning in some other part of the world that is still awaiting further insight to properly understand. I think it's a good thing to communicate freely I think we have to all think very carefully about the quality of information and how we base our care, personal health, public policy, and other decisions as information moves so quickly with less vetting, the more rapid it is shared. And that will be a challenge
0: for us as a community going forward. And then what about the publication process itself? Have we seen lasting changes there?
1: Steve, you are the managing editor. Maybe you should be the first person to address this question.
0: Well, I'd say from the point of view of journal production, what we've really seen is an acceleration of changes that were happening or about to happen in any case. The software we use to produce the journal has moved from local servers to the cloud. We're paying more attention to social media where our presence has grown. We've expanded our production of multimedia, audio and video, including things like this podcast. But I think most of those things, as I say, would have happened anyway. This may not have much to do with production, but the main thing I notice around the office is that there are no more neckties.
1: Well, that is certainly an improvement from my standpoint. I think you're right. I think that there has been a move to technology that was inevitable, but really was pushed by what happened during the epidemic. Another part of that that I'd mention is the move from paper to online publication that's been happening over time and we have not given up on paper. However, the changes in the economy during the outbreak meant that paper skyrocketed in price. And in fact, there were times when it wasn't clear that there was going to be enough paper to even print an issue. So I think all of that is pushing us further toward online publication and the flexibility that that brings. And I know that's disappointing to a lot of our readers who enjoy the tactile sensation of reading through a journal. I hope that we can compensate for that with some of the changes that we'll bring online.
2: Eric and Steve, as you both point out, the process of publishing has changed. But as we've discussed before, and I said earlier, the medium with which we communicate and communicate globally to all ages and to all of our community, be they technologically savvy or not. The ability to create electronic content that is more dynamic, more interactive, and more varied, I think is very attractive to how future learners and future healthcare providers gather information, and it makes it easier to reach health conscious patients and community members. So I think there is tremendous opportunity for the reach and impact of high-quality medical communication to have a much broader global influence in a good way. So I think it's incredibly attractive and opportunity The changes that have occurred. What happens to the physicality of the things we interact with is an open question in general, given the incredible opportunity the internet has created for all of us in terms of information access.
1: I will say something about both form and content. As you said, Steve, we were able to do things like this podcast, which gave us the opportunity to really get into podcasting. And since then, we've started several new podcasts. And um, in a shameless piece of advertising, I should just mention that we have a few new podcasts, one of them on artificial intelligence, another interview series of podcasts called Not Otherwise Specified and what's now bi-weekly and later to become a weekly podcast, we hope, called Intention to Treat, which more broadly covers medicine. I think they're great, and I think our listeners should give them a chance, and I suspect that many of them will like them and hopefully stick with them. But it has meant that the volume of work early on kept us from doing other things that we wanted to do, and now we're getting an opportunity to try some of them out. So one good thing has been that we now have the time to start strategizing about that future that you bring up, Steve, which will consist of not only the high quality studies we publish, but a lot of other features as well. The other thing that's striking is that during COVID, the number of randomized controlled trials, our sort of bread and butter, decreased. They decreased because people weren't able to participate in a lot of these trials. It was difficult to get patients to a clinic or to a hospital during the height of the epidemic. That's changed dramatically, and we're way back to having plenty of interesting randomized controlled trials, not just in COVID. In fact, we're getting very few in COVID-19 these days, but more broadly in all of medicine. So, I think we're back to the high quality non COVID content that allows us to cover medicine broadly, including many topics that are really important to
0: everybody. Eric, I'll give you the chance to have the last word today.
1: Well, I know we're supposed to be looking forward, but I do want to end up just by looking back a little bit. It's been a privilege to work with the group of editors and the staff that we have at the journal through this incredibly trying time in the last three years. They've put in amazing amounts of effort because they really believe in the mission of the journal, the importance of the journal and getting information across during a time of crisis. And it's been wonderful to be able to spend time with these people and to see that kind of dedication. I also want to specifically thank the team here, Lindsay, Steve, and Tim Vining, who's recorded all of our podcasts and in many cases, re-recorded the podcasts what our listeners don't hear is that we have a long prologue mostly consistent of insulting each other but once we get into the meat of it i learn something every week so i really appreciate the opportunity to have spent all this time with you over the last three years i realize that's not coming to an end but the regular schedule may be coming to an end
0: that's right actually that wasn't the last word we'll be back with this podcast when we have more to discuss In the meantime, we'll be covering related topics on the Intention to Treat podcast that you just talked about. And you can find that podcast on our website or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as in the past, Eric and Lindsay, thank you both.